everybody. How is it going? I hope you're doing awesome. Welcome to Pillars. Of course, I'm Dylan Bowman. And this week, it is my honor and privilege to welcome Jerry Colonna to the podcast. And while he might be an unfamiliar name to some of you, maybe most of you, Jerry is a big deal. He is one of the most sought after voices in the world of executive coaching and leadership development. He is the co-founder and CEO of Reboot, which is his coaching firm based in Boulder, Colorado, but with presence in New York City and San Francisco as well. And he is also the author of a book called Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up that we talk about a lot in this podcast. And if you're an avid podcast listener, you might remember Jerry as the coach to the founders of Gimlet Media, the podcasting empire that sold to Spotify just a couple of years ago. But while his practice is focused mostly on entrepreneurs and executives, I think you'll find that Jerry's approach and his message is just as relevant to us athletes. And since we didn't have enough time to really go into how Jerry and I became acquainted during our conversation, just because we had limited time, I wanted to provide a little background on how Jerry's work had a huge impact on me personally, professionally and athletically. I generally don't like podcasts with long introductions, but I think it's important for context in this episode to provide that here on the front end. And as I've spoken about many times in this podcast and other places, uh, 2019 was a terrible year for me. And when I was in the middle of my depression and injury spiral in the summer of that year, my good friend and a former guest of this podcast, Brett Jackson, came to Aspen on a little business trip where I was living at the time. And after he was done with his meetings before he went back down to the front range, we went for a little hike together one afternoon and we had a really great deep discussion about life and struggle and the painful moment that I was navigating at the time. Brett is a very successful person, uh, but he's also been through his tough times as well. And he's just a person whose opinion I've always really valued. So after listening to me hyperventilate with frustration about my situation at the time, Brett encouraged me to pick up and read a book that had just been published by his friend and mentor, a man by the name of Jerry Colonna. So of course the book was called Reboot, as I mentioned, and I bought it that night. Of course, I was in a difficult position at the time. I was not running because of injury, but the next day after buying the book, I set out to go on a long bike ride to keep myself fit during this moment where I couldn't train as a runner. And it was on this bike ride the very next day that I had a very scary accident. I had a big wreck. I separated my shoulder, sustained a pretty serious concussion and managed to set myself back even further at a point when I already felt like I was at rock bottom. And yeah, I was already in the depths of sort of a depression uh, and like this feeling of imbalance that had lasted for months at this point. So it was in this context, uh, a situation of just 
pure desperation and hopelessness that I encountered Jerry's book and devoured it in just a couple of days while I was sitting on the patio with a sling around my newly separated shoulder. And it was one of those moments when it seemed like the universe just gave me exactly what I needed at the moment that I needed it most. And while my rough patch definitely lasted several more months, the book really did help me properly understand my situation at the time, uh, my personality traits that potentially led me to be in that situation, and just helped me to think as Jerry says, how I was complicit in creating the conditions that I said I didn't want. Um, I soon thereafter became an avid listener of Jerry's show, the Reboot Podcast, and was honored to be a guest on the show to talk about my ordeal, which is still probably my favorite appearance as a guest on anybody's podcasts. And I think I'll link to that in the show notes if you guys want to check it out after our conversation today. All this is simply to say that Jerry is a very special man who's had a big influence on me and many other people. It's an honor to have him on the show. I hope you guys enjoy. Jerry Colonna, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. It's great to see you too, Dylan. It's been a long time. It has been a long time, but uh, I, I admire and observe everything you do from afar. So I feel like I know you very well, even though I don't know you super well personally. I'm, I've been a, a huge fan and admirer of yours um, for at least the last year and a half or so since I originally became acquainted with your work. Um, but of course, you know, you're, you're a, a big deal in the world of, of coaching business leaders, founders, entrepreneurs, but I suspect you're <laughs> a big guy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I bet you're, you're a little bit less well-known among my audience and, and athletes in general. So to start as, you know, a bit of an introduction to who you are, uh, I've heard you describe yourself as a mix between a therapist and a consultant, which I think is a, is a great description. So I would I was hoping mm -hmm. you could expand on that as a way to introduce yourself to a, a more athletically inclined audience. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Although uh, that, that was a little bit of a lie. I hate talking about myself, um, which probably <laughs> means narcissistically. I love talking about myself. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the way I think about it is that I, I kind of live in this Venn diagram space between a kind of business expertise and a lifelong, feels like, student of psychoanalysis. So I'm going on 31 years in psychoanalysis, for example. But I would also add uh, a third circle in that Venn diagram of Buddhism. And so I'm this very kind of odd duck combination between um, having been a former venture capitalist and helped start or sit on the boards of you know, hundreds of organizations, coupled with having to dive deep into my own wreck, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, using those other techniques. And so I kind of hold this space right in between those three things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I've been so touched by your work is because the parallels that 
uh, are so obvious between what, what athletes and particularly professional athletes go, go through and what entrepreneurs and founders go through. And in my experience, it feels like, you know, when things are going great, like I need a consultant, you know, and when things Mm -hmm. are going bad, I need a therapist. (laughs) Um, and, and I suspect it's probably similar with, with the people you work with in business. So how do you, how do you balance that, that therapist and consultant teeter totter? Um, I think that the right thing to do for anybody um, who endeavors to to come at um, supporting people, either from whatever angle you're coming at, is to follow the advice of my long-term uh, psychoanalyst who used to tell me all the time, you meet the client where they are. You don't drag the client to where you are. And uh, sometimes that means holding their heart lightly. Um, Sometimes that means a good smack upside their head and telling them what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Mm. Sometimes it means um, laying out a path that they may not have seen before. Um, But I'll give you another visual as well. Um, I've taken to using this to describe both Uh, my work, um, the work I see as leadership, and even my role as a parent. Mm. And that is the impulse that we often have is to jump in front of somebody and clear the way. Mm. And the impulse can also be equally strong to stand behind them and push them really hard. And the right stance is actually shoulder to shoulder occasionally leaning over and whispering as they're driving down the road, careful, there's a pothole up ahead. I've driven on this road and it breaks your axle. Yeah. Right. And that latter stance is a really important stance because any other stance can inadvertently contribute to the undermining of someone's self-esteem. Mm. Wow, it's it's so beautiful, and it actually reminds me of something I want to talk about later in your recent podcast with your friend and and uh, and client Chad Dickerson, and standing shoulder to shoulder with him through a really difficult mm-hmm. period. But we'll save save that for a little bit later. But that was uh, something that was really touched me. But um, I feel like you know just to give people a little bit more sort of insight into who you are, of course we've known each other for about a year and a half, very loosely. Um, but I became familiar with your work in a a really difficult moment in my life. And it had a huge, huge impact on me when I was going through what was easily the, the lowest moment of my life. And, um, I want to discuss sort of like what makes you special and maybe, uh, challenge you to, to open up a new division of your, your company reboot, uh, focused on, on athletes. Cause I think you'd have a, an amazing, uh, ability to influence people, um, via, you know, the, the style and the, uh, just disposition that you have. But first mm-hmm. I, I know as a bit more background, you know, in a past life before you were a coach, you were a successful entrepreneur, venture, venture capitalist. And you seemingly had all this out, all the outward indicators of success uh, before you had your own sort of personal crisis in the early 2000s that led to this change in trajectory in your career. So can you talk about that moment in your life, um, you know, that that really low moment when it's seemingly anybody who who knew you or who saw what you were involved with professionally would have thought, wow, Jerry is so successful. 
but internally that wasn't the case and how you navigated that, how it shaped uh, that second chapter of your life as a coach. Sure. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that, but I'll warn you that um, I will ask you why that moment means so much to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know um, why, you know why. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, what Dylan, what you're referring to is this moment when I was 38 in which um, I'm now 57. So a long time ago, but this moment when um, the dissonance between the outward projection of who I was and the inner reality of who I was, uh, that dissonance became so unbearable. And to, to be more specific about it, uh, you're referring to the time when uh, I was a venture capitalist working with a partner named Fred Wilson at a firm that we had started called Flatiron Partners. And as I reference in my book, uh, New York Magazine had called us the princes of New York. We were the golden child uh, children. I guess. Yeah. Anything that we seemingly anything that we invested in, anything that we touched seemed to turn to gold. And um, uh, like the Midas tale that that is take that phrase is taken from, it's kind of poisonous um, because uh, what was not apparent to me uh, at the time, but is abundantly apparent to me now is that the more successful, the more success people projected onto me by their interpretation of whatever achievements they thought I was having, the worse I felt. Mm. And because the little voice in my head kept saying, it's not real, it's fragile, it's gonna go away. Um, you don't deserve this. You're just fill in the blank, lucky, um, you know, you know, privileged, whatever it is. And the result was that that dissonance got louder and louder and louder to the point where I, the, a long-term battle with depression and suicidal ideation, which was made manifest in my late teens uh, when I attempted suicide um, came back. And I often visualize it as a demon mm -hmm. coming back and sort of roaring at me. And um, there's this moment in my life that I will never forget where I was standing outside uh, above ground at the pile that had been the World Trade Center in February, 2002. And I chose, um, the, the impulse I had was to kill myself by leaping in front of a subway. But instead, I chose to call that psychoanalyst I referenced before. Yeah. And, uh, and that was that moment. Yeah. Of split. And it, it launched you into a, a new trajectory that I'm sure provides you so much value uh, in as much as you provide incredible value to the people that you work with and probably revealed to you some strengths that you have that you maybe 
you know, didn't fully appreciate when you were a wildly successful venture capitalist. And it probably brings you a different type of satisfaction than closing a really lucrative deal. I'm curious. Let me just build on that. Yes, to all those things. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing that it brought me was it it ended the dissonance between the outer and the inner. Mm. So, So... the result was that I got to live my life. I get to live my life as one person. Wow. Not split. Not, yeah, not having the, the false uh, sort of outward appearance of uh, being very successful, but internally feeling, oh, I'm a That's fraud. Right. I've, I've fooled these people. Yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah, that I mean, it's just so relevant to exactly how I felt when I became connected with with you and your work. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it definitely uh, also yeah, reinforces sort of how I've felt in my navigation of that period of my life and, you know, feeling as if I've emerged from it, you know, never, never figuring everything out, but certainly emerging and on a new trajectory in my life where that inner and outer a little bit more in line. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that your your book and your podcast and all your work has has really helped me to do is understand more about myself and that's sort of critical mm-hmm. to your practice and it feels like it's something that it took you a long time to figure out just your own personal motivations your own personal um impulses and you talk in your book about uh, a moment in your life when your dad came home from his job when a job he had held for 30 years um, and he had lost his job and the impact that this had on your own psych- psychology and your approach to your career. Um, and this is another thing that, you know, I just totally identified with, not in the mm-hmm. literal sense, um, not in my own personal experience with my parents or whatever, but just looking back at my formative years and understanding how that's shaped the person that I am now. I wondered mm-hmm. if you would expand on that, just the the self-inquiry, maybe the specific moment with your father, what you learned from it, and just the importance of getting to know ourselves a little bit better in an honest way. Yeah. So for context, I'll, I'll refer back to a concept that um, I explore and, and, the concept isn't new. The language is a little bit new. Um, I, I refer to this process as radical self-inquiry. Mm-hmm. And what's important about that uh, is to understand that what's radical about it is that we're socialized not to do it. Uh, we're socialized to not look in the closet. We're socialized to not look inwardly. In fact, a lot of times what happens is people start to look at things and they hear a little voice in the head that says, you're so self-indulgent, you're so narcissistic. And so what do I mean by that? I, you know, I often define it as the process by which the masks that we wear are compassionately and skillfully stripped away. Compassionate is really important here until there's no place left to hide. Mm-hmm. And um, now, that you could use that that term to describe what happens when you start to advance in meditation practice, for example, or when you start to really get into a therapeutic stance, mm-hmm. or when you really start to journal in a way that's powerful and honest. And you start to look at questions like this is a famous question that I've that I've formulated 
from advice from my therapist. And it goes like this, how have I been complicit, not responsible, complicit in creating the conditions I say I don't want? So for example, for me to go back to where I was in my thirties, an expression of that kind of radical self-inquiry would be to acknowledge and admit that I loved the approbation that I received. I loved it when New York Magazine called me a Prince of New York. I was just a schmuck from Brooklyn. And to sort of elevate myself into the Emerald City, as we thought of it, of Manhattan, mm -hmm. was really powerful. For me to deny that that was really important is dishonest with yeah. myself, okay? So one of the challenges is that when you start to undo this, the temptation, the first temptation is to examine it as if it's narcissistic, as if it's self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. The second resistance point, because that's what it is, is to use the things that you discover as weapons. See, here's what's really wrong with you, Jerry. You're an egocentric, narcissistic, driven SOB. You've yeah. always been that way. And so you really loved it yeah. when New York Magazine called you that, right? That is not the purpose. That voice does not need more ammunition, Yeah. right? We start to unpack that in that process so that we can actually unwind the thread that has knotted us up so much so that we get some liberty from freedom from the thought processes that drove us to, to act in that separating way in the mm -hmm. first place. Now, there was a second half to your question. I forgot it. So no, that, that was perfect. And uh, I think, again, it's just like the parallel to professional sport is so perfect because, you know, the feelings that you get when you perform super well and everybody is patting you on the back physically and digitally and your sponsors are happy and all these media opportunities and business opportunities start coming your way. It's so easy to like be so caught up in, you know, the good feeling that that provides to your ego and start to feel like you've sort of figured something out that there's something really special about you. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you may be uh, benefiting from a lot of hard work, but eventually you're sort of also going to be benefiting from some semblance of chance and, and good luck. So I'm, I'm curious how, how you advise people who are all very driven, successful, hardworking, motivated people to kind of dissociate those outward signals of success, like being in New York magazine or standing on the top of a podium, um, or, or at least not dissociate from them, but, but get to the, the deeper importance of, uh, the practice or, uh, you know, bringing our, our outward self and our inward self more into communion. Hmm. So, um, there's a couple of things I would say, um, since the book came out, which is, um, almost two years now, it'll be two years this June. Um, I've actually been contacted by many, many folks from outside the normal endemic universe in which I have operated 
And this includes, I won't name him because um, I don't have his permission, but this includes a, a former football, professional football player uh, who started tweeting about quotes from my book. And I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> That's not what I expected. Yeah. And um, like you, I think what happened was he had read the book um, and we got in touch and, and cause I was like, dude, like what's up, you know? And, and we connected and he shared with me that um, he had a very short lived professional career. He was a superstar in college. Uh, had a very short-lived uh, professional career because of an injury, mm-hmm. which I know you can relate to. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then what was supposed to be the most promising part of his life in his early twenties, mind you, yeah, was gone. And um, he identifies as black. And we, when we started talking, we started talking about. Um, uh, the fetish that uh, predominantly white society has on black bodies yep. and how uh, an athlete in particular uh, can suffer from uh, the belief that not only am I only as good as my achievement, but I'm only as good as my body. And if I, my body fails in some way or another, then who am I? Yep. Yeah, you're nodding. So I thought of you when we were talking. And and so you asked, so what do, what do I advise to do? And, and by the way, I've been contacted by a professional cyclist, um, a boxer, you know, so... This, this is know, why I've, this is why reboot needs to have a, a sports <laughs> sports athletic weekend. Yeah, right. Well, there's also been a uh, uh, more than one uh, 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 movie actors yeah. uh, reaching out. So wow. so 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 you know what 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 we know to be true is that there is actually no one who is not. I've even had political leaders. Mm-hmm. There is no one who is not uh, susceptible to the kind of warping of our inner sense of self-worth that this is really emblematic of. Mm. Anyway, you asked about the, 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 the treatment, if you will. Yeah. Um, in that case, in the first uh, fellow's case that I was describing, what I did was, uh, what we did was we spent time trying to understand why it was so important that as far back as he could remember, he was singularly focused on uh, professional football. And uh, as, as you know, the pursuit of a sport has the physiological benefits and the emotional benefits of everything from endorphins to, to oxytocin, flooding the system to just feel good hormones, you know? But more often than not, um, there's something maybe even dark compelling that person, mm. right? Um, and in this case, it was poverty, uh, poverty in a racist society um, and uh, in a white supremacist capitalist structure, there are lessons uh, that are, are inescapable for, for certain folks, which is that there's only two paths out. One is to exploit your body 
and the other might be criminal. Yeah. And, and, and so once we began unpacking that, the question then became, well, what is it that you want to do? And that question became radical. Yeah. Because he, he, his entire life, it was devoted to just uh, performing physically and escaping poverty when that didn't necessarily bring him tremendous, you know, interpersonal satisfaction, probably. Yeah, uh, it, it, uh, it, it was a pursuit of safety above all else. Yeah. yeah. So similar, I guess, you know, to kind of beat the sports metaphors to death, it seems like, you know, the injury that this person experienced and that all athletes experience. And that was a huge part of my personal crisis, uh, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. Um, it's, it seems very similar to a situation where, you know, you miss earnings and you have to lay off a big portion of your, your company where you feel like you failed. There's no path back to success. You, mm. Maybe maybe you're washed up. Maybe you start to question all the, you know, signals you've been receiving about how great you are. Um, so you know, it leads to this this, and we're sort of tiptoeing around it. But just the the identity portion of of who we are as mm. athletes and and as business people and. Um, you know, this is one of the other huge things that I think your work really helped me out with is to sort of decouple my, my identity as an athlete from, you know, my ability to feel good about who I, who I am as a person. I'm curious, you know, with, with entrepreneurs and, and founders uh, as well, you know, in the same way that an athlete becomes, I'm a runner, you know, and if there's, if I'm not winning races, if I'm not kicking ass, I'm a worthless you know, person not contributing anything. I feel, you know, founders probably feel very similarly, like this company is me, you know, and mm -hmm. if it fails, I am a total fuck up forever. How do you, I mean, in, in, in uh, I guess, instead of, uh, you know, stand in standing shoulder to shoulder, as you said, I mean, how do you help people to understand that, like, they're a human independent of these pursuits that don't allow a lot of balance. Well, one of the first things I will share with them oftentimes is, <clears throat> excuse me, an old story that I, that I uh, read in a book by David White. Um, and the story goes like this. Um, there was an ancient potter who had spent his entire life trying to perfect the most exquisite glaze imaginable. And at the end of his life, deciding that his meaningful life was over, he walks into the kiln and disappears into the fire. Mm. The next day, the potter's assistants open up the kiln and take out the pots, and they're covered with the most exquisite glaze imaginable. And that's the story. And I always tell that story to make the point that there's a paradox in that story. Because the, the potter achieved his life obsession, but at what cost? Self-immolation. Self-immolation, self-disappearance, yeah. self-annihilation, yeah. right? Done, gone, you know, merged with the work, if you wait, if you will. Um, it's a very complex story 
because you can read it simply as a cautionary tale to not work so hard in whatever endeavor you've got. Or you can see it, I mean, some people actually see it as a positive tale, right? They see that glaze on the pot and then they know that they can rest easy. Mm. And so what I do is I say, um, where's the potter's spouse? How about their children or grandchildren? How about um, the other wishes and dreams that define the potter? Mm-hmm. Those are all lost in that kiln as well. And yeah. they didn't have a choice, right? Um, and the, the, the final message that I, that I suggest around that story is not that it's right or wrong to walk into the kiln. It, but to understand why you're walking the kiln in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we want to broaden this for athletes, what I would say to you, Dylan, is why did you run so far and so fast? Yeah. I mean, right? it's, it, it leads into sort of what I wanted to talk about as well. And just this, this theory that I have that maybe will resonate with you. Maybe it won't, but mm-hmm you know, with athletes and business people and anybody who's doing something that's, you know, sort of on the edges that requires total commitment, that people are either motivated by ego or insecurity. And probably most of us have some of both elements, but, you know, ego being that you want to prove to everybody else how great you are. And, dominate be the alpha or being driven by insecurity and needing wanting to prove to yourself that you're not a worthless piece of shit like I was feeling like and I feel like on that spectrum and again I think we probably all have a little bit of both I definitely am on more the insecurity side of things you know and so to your question of you know why why do you run so far it's like well uh, you know, I think I definitely love the pursuit and, and everything that's it's brought into my life. But I think, you know, on the deepest level, it's probably driven by some personal insecurity, you know, and some feeling that, uh, you know, that this is, you know, my my path to, you know, having articles written about me in New York Magazine, to use your example, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious well, if that resonates with you, the whole. It, 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 it does. And 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 I, I would have you explore the possibility that the dichotomy that you set up, it's either this or this, is in fact false. Mm-hmm. I would have you explore the possibility that the ego, what you're defining as ego, is the wish to dominate, the wish to prove people wrong. What that says to me, who's trained himself to listen very, very closely to people, is I, I, I ask myself a question. I'm curious, what voice are they hearing? And what is, what is that voice saying that causes them to think that their life's mission should be to dominate and be the alpha? Mm-hmm. And I suspect that what they're hearing is the same thing that the insecure person is hearing, which is that you're a piece of shit, you're worthless, mm. you can't, right? But, you know, look, one of the most important um, beliefs that that allowed me to to really understand Buddhism 
was a simple phrase, simple notion that um, I was born good, basically fundamentally good, simply by being born, simply by being human. For me, that was like mind blowing because I was raised in a Catholic tradition with its implicit uh, message of the need for salvation. Mm. You are not good unless you do certain things. And good gets translated into worthy of love, worthy of safety, and having a place to belong. So I would offer that the, the walking into the kiln, if you will, uh, blind to the reasons why you're walking to the kiln may in fact all be rooted in a fundamental questioning of whether or not you deserve to feel loved, to feel safe, and to feel that you belong. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of athletes uh, can identify with this as well. But, you know, I think for me, looking back at my earliest days, sport was always my obsession, right? It was always like what I was good at. It's always where I made friends. It's always where my parents came out to cheer for me. You know, it's where I developed community. And, you know, I I think for all athletes that becomes one of the things that draws us all to the lifestyle of, of sport and stick with it for as long as we possibly can. And that's why it becomes so hard when it's taken away from you. Right. In my case with injury or with aging and retiring. And again, I think that's something you could really help a lot of athletes with as well. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, it goes back to what you were saying before about how, how am I complicit in the situations Uh, in my life that I say I don't want. And for me, when I was like deep in my depressive episode, my whole, you know, the the way that I was complicit is because I had forever gotten all of my self-love, my feeling of self-worth from my ability to perform. And by, yeah, not working on, cultivating that implicitly in Dylan, the human being, not Dylan, the athlete is, is why I felt so freaking awful about myself. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, all athletes sort of have to learn at some point and probably all entrepreneurs as well. When did you start running? I started late Jerry, cause I played lacrosse through high school and college. So I started running after, after college. But when, I've always when, been an athlete, you know, that's been my identity, identity since I was a little kid, you know, that's all I ever wanted to be when I grew up. That's all I ever wanted to be involved in. And one of the, and I was actually thinking about this this morning on my run mm-hmm. is, you know, as I, I get older and, and think about the future, um, you know, I still want to be involved in, in sport, you know, this is my thing, you know, this mm-hmm. is what I love to do. Similar to, to you, you have a natural understanding of, of business and finance and an eye for good investments, you know, sport is my thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I know I can have a big impact independent of being able to perform well, you know? Mm-hmm. So to, yeah, to answer your question, it's been, since, well, since I was a little kid. Uh, you know, when, when you were giving me the context and the setup around 
the observation you were just making, there was an image that you shared. It's when our parents came out to cheer for us. Yeah. And I'm curious about that image. That image struck, like, it softened my heart as soon as I said it, right? It brought me back to cheering for my kids, it, you know, the whole experience of it, right? And so, um, so here you'll see the magician do his, his, his magic trick, right? Um, uh, that image stayed with me so strong. And your face actually shifted as you were saying that because you were transported back to a time when, in which you were getting something. And what I wrote was parents came out to cheer me on. And then I wrote next to it, love of the sport, question mark. And um, one of the paradoxes of the human experience is when you first began pursuing sport, it was probably for the love of the sport Mm -hmm. because you hadn't yet experienced the cheer of the parents and all that that represents, your version of New York Magazine. So you started doing this thing that you just loved out of love. Your body got to be in itself. Mm-hmm. How wonderful, how human, how glorious. And then rah, the cheer yeah. and the roar. Oh, wait, now I get both. <laughs> yeah. Right? And it's that moment. And then I'll fast forward and you said, on my run this morning. And it made me happy to hear on my run this morning because nobody was cheering you on. You were just running for love, right? And the problem when we merge those two experiences, the roar of the crowd with the love of the sport, we start to mistake one for the other, right? Uh, you know, you you talked about me as a coach, right? You know, my closer experience of this is when I write. I love writing. I lo- love writing. I'm kind of ambivalent about having people read it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right? I like when people are pleased with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I have steered clear of the Amazon book reviews. Yeah. Right so that I can stay connected to what the love of the craft does to me. Yeah. It's beautiful, Jerry. And it compels me to, to read a quote that had a, a big impact on me. This isn't from you, but it's from actually my father-in-law. Uh, his mm-hmm. name's Scott Tightsworth. And he's written a few books himself and a really interesting um, spiritual guy, uh, you mm-hmm. know, an amazing man, mentor, Uh, And it's in this vein. And it's something that I also found uh, in the same period of time that I read your book that helped me to reconnect with why I love sport, independent of, you know, the, the outward adulation and all the awesome material things that come from it. And what he says is, and he's talking about his own pursuit as a pian as a piano player, pianist. Ah. He says, as a kid, I played fairly well and my family had always gathered around the piano to praise me. They were very excited about my talent. They admired me. I realized that part of me had never let go of that pleasure. I was still playing in hopes of being admired and loved and appreciated. And I realized that that was an impediment to me being fully involved in the music. 
<laughs> recognizing this was an important step in my evolution as a mature artist. It, pro it prompted me to take back the inner musical authority that as a child I had ceded to my family and admirers. I became free to really play the music. And I love that's that. It. That's perfect, it. That, isn't it. It's brilliant. It's yeah. wonderful. Yes. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly what we're talking about. Exactly. So yeah. let's, let's talk about something that I referenced earlier, and that is your recent podcast with your, your friend, Chad Dickerson. It was a beautiful conversation. I'm going to link mm -hmm. to it here uh, to share with people who uh, are interested to go revisit it. But you guys talk about, um, the episode, um, in this episode, when Chad was, was fired from his position as the CEO of Etsy and you mm. traveling out to be with him during this incredibly traumatic time. I, I want to start by, uh, allowing you to sort of talk about how as a coach that impacts you and, and what made you feel compelled to go be with him physically at that moment in his life. Hmm. Well, first I want to say that the conversation is beautiful because Chad is a beautiful man. And, you know, as I describe in my book, because I, I, I talk a little bit about that episode, um, that experience that he went through, um, it's very, very clear to me that he is, as a leader, he embodies what I refer to as the warrior stance, strong back, open heart. Um, so I encourage people to listen to that podcast conversation, to listen to, to Chad. You know, what compelled me to, to fly there and, and sit with him on the rooftop of, of Etsy in downtown Brooklyn, um, the night before they were announcing that he had been terminated, um, was love. I mean, um, I've never said this connection out loud, so I'll say it here for the first time. When I sit in meditation in the morning, I quote, uh, as part of my, uh, not a mantra, but my opening prayer, um, I quote uh, uh, a line from the Buddhist teacher Shantideva, who in his book, The Bodhisattva Way, uh, or The Way of the Bodhisattva, he talks about the notion of becoming a Bodhisattva. And a Bodhisattva is someone who has attained enlightenment, but chooses to take rebirth and come back until all beings achieve enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a it's a it's a it's a form toward it, it. It's a call to work to the alleviation of suffering for all beings. Mm -hmm. And so every morning I take my bodhisattva vow um, uh, as part of my morning meditation. And, um, you know, put simply, uh, someone I cared about deeply was in pain mm -hmm. and I could not change it. I could not make it easier for him, um, but I could sit on a picnic bench on the rooftop, watching the sunset, shoulder to shoulder, clinking a beer, yeah, and let him know that whatever the outcome, whatever had happened, he was a good leader. 
How does it make you feel on a personal level? Like uh, you're obviously a, a more enlightened person than most of us, but do you ever feel in situations like that? Like I've failed as a coach? Oh, absolutely. Or, yeah. Absolutely. And as I was about to laugh out loud when you said I'm more obviously more enlightened. <laughs> That's a dangerous thought. Um, no, I mean, you know, to, to, to be clear, Chad was the fourth CEO client in the space of three months who had been terminated mm. that I work with. Yeah. And so the first impulse was I fucked up. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but, but um, that's not my job. My job is not to keep, um, keep someone employed. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but yeah, it, it felt like failure on my part, you know, and, 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 uh, and let's be clear, you know, we're talking on a Friday morning on Monday this week, I finished a day of coaching calls and I went to see my partner, Allie, we were having dinner. I, mean, I walked out of the room and she was making <laughs> dinner. Right? And I said, uh, well, I feel like an incompetent coach today. She's like, oh, okay. Today's a day where we feel incompetent. Yeah. And by Wednesday, I was like, okay, not so bad. I'm okay. Yeah. So in this, in this chapter of your book, um, that focuses a lot on, on Chad, you, you talk about the crucible of leadership, which is something that is really important to what you do. Um, I'm curious, maybe if you want to sort of explain this, this concept of the crucible, um, it's something that we probably all encounter in our lives to one degree or another and how I, we, I, how I we can that, confront, how we can yeah. confront these, these moments with, with more grace. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think we are all presented with crucibles. Um, the term comes from the leadership author, uh, Lauren Bennis, who is brilliant. And I highly recommend um, his book, Becoming a Leader. Um, and he describes the crucible, and just, so just to remember, a crucible is, in, is a container in which an alchemist would uh, melt lead and in the pursuit of turning into gold. Mm-hmm. So it's a lead into gold metaphor, right? And um, uh, he applies it to, the, to those moments that test us, to those moments that... Uh, that provide the basis for turning the lead into gold. And uh, in the case of Chad, um, uh, the, the insight that I had was that uh, in his last days, officially as a CEO, he became an even better leader because of the way he was with the pain of that loss. Um, and I want to be very precise about this. It, this is not a call for bullshit, gritty, stick it to the man, whatever machismo, nonsensical stance that one might say, you know, play through the pain. Mm-hmm. It, but it is a call for finding grace, finding deeper strength and resilience. Um, The reality may be, 
you know, and I'm thinking about your listeners right now, the reality may be that a stress fracture may cause you to never be able to run a hundred miles again. Mm-hmm. Um, the crucible moment doesn't call for you to run a hundred miles again through the stress fracture. The crucible moment calls for you to remember who the fuck you are. What motivated you in the first place? What was the love of playing piano? Yeah. To find the artist that is deep, deep within all of the roar and all the cheer. Yeah. And to get back to that person. That's the crucible moment. So so to bring it to where the rubber meets the road and Chad's example specifically, you said he became a better leader after he was fired. So he he past his crucible moment, for lack of a better word. Can you give a, maybe a concrete example of how Chad met that moment with grace and integrity? Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, I would say he became a better human because of that mm-hmm. and better humans, as you know, I want to say, make better leaders. Yeah. Right? So here's a perfect example of it, right? You know, when it came time to announce to the company that he was no longer going to be CEO against the judgment of everybody around him, PR specialists, communication specialists, the incoming CEO, everybody. He stood up in front of the company, the entire company and said, I was fired. I'm not choosing to spend more time with my family. (laughs) Right. Yep. Right. He stood there and looked that demon right in its mouth and said, eat me if you wish. He leaned right into the toughest feeling, which was shame. Mm-hmm. And so in my view, when a leader confronts the potential of their own shame, they are leading and modeling. You know, there are a lot of reasons why leaders, people who hold power behave in toxic ways. One of the most predominant ones is that they're trying to avoid humiliation and shame. Yeah. Right. So that's courage, by the way. Totally. So courageous. And it it strikes me. I mean, of course, I don't know Chad personally, but yeah, I mean, just being able to be so honest and have the integrity to insist on publicly saying, no, I was fired rather than come up with the euphemism that nobody probably would, would believe in the first place. That's so right. is that, as we sort of wind down here, Jerry, I know you have to go, and this has been an absolute pleasure. The value of, of confronting these demons. I mean, how do we get better at looking the demon in the eye in these crucible moments rather than shrinking away from it or telling ourselves some false story to make ourselves feel better about whatever situation we're in. Well, I suppose it's a, it's a two-step process. And the first step is to admit what the real demon is, right? Um, and in his case, the, the real demon was, what will people think of me? Oh my God. Yeah. Right now, if you think about what we're talking about before, about the roar of the crowd and the cheer of your parents and the approbation, 
the fear is all of the, the ego aggrandizing love that comes along with that will disappear. Mm-hmm. And then who am I? The second step is practice, like anything else. Right? It's the realization that those demons are really not as bad as you think they are. Yeah. And, and um, you know, by the time I die, which hopefully is a long time from now, I hope that I will have finally become completely unafraid of telling the truth all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm better than I was. Yeah. But um, it's always a struggle. I love this idea of just practicing, you know, it's just like, it's just like sport, you know, you just have to train it every day. You know, how do you get better at looking at the demon? It's just by when you, when you see the demon, don't, don't run away or, or um, pause a minute or two before you run away. And then let me give you a little practice that you could do every day. Yeah. Okay. One of the, one of the biggest challenges that I have found in uh, love relationships in my life is something happens and then I start to tell myself a story about the thing that happened and then I relate to the story instead of my partner mm-hmm. okay and so Allie and I have this practice that we've kind of learned from Brene Brown which is when one or the other of us gets triggered what we start with is the story I'm telling myself right now is right so for example a number of years ago, she was sitting at the dining table and I passed her to go downstairs to the laundry. Mm-hmm. And she popped up and said, the story I'm telling myself is that you're about to leave me. And I said, I'm just doing the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there's such bravery in that. Yeah. And such grace and beauty. Mm. And I was able to say, oh, she in this moment needs reassurance that I love her and I'm not going anywhere. Mm. So that's what I said. Now, imagine if we could do that every day with the most most important relationships in our lives. Yeah. Right? All of a sudden, that we defang the the demon. It's still there. It still crops up, but it can't do anything to you. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the radical self inquiry, and Ali just knowing herself and, and being honest about the thing that she's experiencing, which then puts you in a position to, to know what she needs. And so, so by having that, that self awareness, self inquiry and communicating it, being honest about it, it actually helps, helps you to, uh, yeah, to be a better person yourself, a better partner. And, uh, I'm sure, yeah, it cultivates a better relationship between the two of you, so. You got it. That's exactly this point of the story. Well, Jerry, um, I could talk to you for, for hours and hours, um, mm-hmm. and, and that's why it's great that you have your own podcast so I can glean in, <laughs> insights from, um, you know, the, the people that you talk to and, and the amazing, um, yeah, sort of words and advice that you uh, are you distill in your podcast and in your book? And um, I so appreciate your time coming, coming on my show and talking to athletes. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, I'll challenge you to, to open up the reboot sport wing of your business and uh, I'll be uh, your first customer. And um, you got it. <laughs> 
and uh, I hope, uh, I hope, uh, you know, I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, again, so, so grateful for everything that you do. Well, thank you for having me on the show and thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I, I see what you're doing, Dylan. You know, when we talked a year and a half ago, I kind of challenged you to think about what's next in your life. And I see you leaning into that. Yeah. And the people who listen to your show are being, are benefited. So that's you living at your Bodhisattva vow. Well, again, it was, uh, much of it was born from your book and your podcast. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really has helped me to think more about uh, what is in the future and become a little bit more comfortable with Dylan the person rather than Dylan the athlete. And for that, I am enormously grateful. You're welcome. Thank you. What'd you guys think? I hope you did enjoy. I found that one to be so, so special. I could have talked to Jerry for ages. He's a very busy man. So I'm grateful to have had an hour of his time and hopefully we can do it again sometime in the future. Check out the show notes for this week's episode. There's a lot in there that I think you guys will enjoy digging into. Again, I linked to my appearance on Jerry's podcast that we recorded uh, probably a year and a half ago. I also linked to Jerry's coaching business, which is called Reboot, which we talked about a lot. You can poke around in there, see what their philosophy is, uh, who the people are that work there, and inquire about their services if it's something that you think is a good fit for you. Um, I also, of course, linked to Jerry's podcast conversation that he did just a few weeks ago with Chad Dickerson that we talked about at length in our conversation about Chad's uh, traumatic departure from Etsy and Jerry's role as a coach during that moment in Chad's uh, career. Um, I also linked to where you can follow Jerry on Twitter. He's a great Twitter follow and a link to where you can buy Jerry's book. Again, I cannot recommend it enough. It's for business people really, but you could basically substitute the word founder or entrepreneur on every page with the word athlete and the book would be just as relevant and just as valuable. So I hope you guys will check it out. Also subscribe to uh, to Jerry's podcast. It's really, really freaking great. And also subscribe to my app. Go check it out. Pillars. You can find it in the iOS app store. Still waiting on Android. I'm so sorry. Thank you guys for your patience. Uh, but thank you guys always for being here. If you enjoy the show, leave me a rating or review, but keep showing up. I promise to keep doing it. Okay. Talk to you guys soon. Love you. Bye.